friends, and welcome. This is the Happy Warrior Podcast, fresh takes on the most important and little-known stories of the day, hosted by the Happy Warrior Substack and everyone's favorite conservatarian journo and disabled otaku, Pete Pishke. Hello, friends. Great to be here with all of you again here on the Happy Warrior Podcast. In today's episode, I have the privilege of having on a legend from the comics world. Comic creators are finally pushing back against the subversive wokeness and identity politics that are ripping apart the medium and our culture, too. One of these icons from the world of comics is Mike Barron, who is coming out with a new pro-police comic, The Thin Blue Line. Now, this name may not be familiar to you if you aren't a comics turbo nerd like me, but you will likely have enjoyed the influence of his work, whether you knew it or not. Baron is also a two-time Eisner Award winner, and he worked for both DC Comics and Marvel, and had a prolific run with The Punisher during the 1980s and 90s. During his career, he covered everything from Star Wars to The Flash to Batman and more. For the normies out there, to give you an idea of what Baron's influence is like, look to the hit Netflix series, The Punisher. My brother John is a huge fan of that show. And there's so much influence from Baron in the DNA of the Netflix Punisher series and basically anything Punisher. For example, the character of Micro, the Orthodox Jewish hacker in season one, is a Baron creation as is the anti-security state narrative and the anti-big government corrupt intelligence agency threads that are woven through the comic series that is Punisher. And in fact, today, many people in the comic creators, including many very woke ones like Gail Simone, cite Baron's work in comics as significant influences on them. And let's be honest, it can't escape the notice of anyone paying the least bit attention that the Western comic book publishing industry is a mess and seems to ripen more towards its ever destruction every single day. Legacy characters like Superman or Robin get replaced with hollowed out woke versions and at the same time the storylines they appear in are sanitized and most of all boring. The comics industry is a mess and continues to fall further apart every day as Japanese manga sales entirely supplant it with the bulk of comic sales in the western comics industry, put that in air quotes, are now basically scholastic books for eight-year-olds. Things are so bad that major creators have left the big two for the life raft named Substack, which I am also on. There are even whispers that one of the big two, DC or Marvel, any day now will stop publishing altogether. So it's a big deal when notable creators come back out like Baron and get involved trying to write the ship that is comics and so to make them fun again. In this interview I do with Baron, we're gonna talk about his legacy in the world of comics, his latest pro-law enforcement comics project, and what he sees for the comics industry lying ahead. Thanks, Mike. It's great to have you here with us on the Happy Warrior podcast today. It's my pleasure. So, Mike, I am pretty familiar with your work, but I imagine a lot of the people in my audience are not. Uh, let's tell the folks a little bit about yourself. How did you get your start in comics? Well, I always wanted to write comics since uh, picking up an Uncle Scrooge in Mitchell, South Dakota, where I grew up. 
uh, and I always wanted to write, and I always had absolute confidence that I could write, uh, since long before I learned how to write. Uh, in fact, my first job out of college was smoking marijuana for the government. I heard that there were newspapers <laughs> in Boston that would hire anybody who could string two words together. So I moved to Boston, and I saw an ad in the back of the Boston Phoenix asking for volunteers to live on a hospital ward in Mattapan for a month, uh, smoke government grow marijuana all day and take a battery of tests. It was just like college. So I responded to that and I did it. When I got out, I wrote it up and the Boston Phoenix bought it. And that's how I broke into journalism. For seven years, I worked on newspapers, actually longer than that, but uh, uh, a lot of journalism. I wrote for Cream, uh, Fusion, Boston Globe, the Boston Phoenix, of course, where I was music editor. Uh, I wrote for We Magazine. I moved back to Madison in 1977. And in 1981, I met Steve Rude. And uh, they say uh, timing is everything. And we were just in the right place at the right time uh, because Capital City Distribution, the second largest distributor of comic books in the world, decided to publish their own line. So I went home and I brainstormed Nexus, the reluctant executioner of mass murderers, and I drew them out page by page. That's how I used to write comics. I wrote comics like that for 15 years by drawing each page out by hand uh, with my bad art uh, and all the word balloons and all the captions. Uh, but artists and editors loved it because they could tell at a glance what was going on on the page. And it taught me many valuable lessons not the least of which is how much weight a page can sustain. And by that, I mean, how many words can you put on a, a page before you lose the reader? Uh, and because I was making these up on the fly, I didn't outline in those days, although I do now, it also taught me what happens next, which is the most important question in fiction. What happens next? The reader has to care before he will turn the page. So I learned how to make the reader care. I, and how do you do that? There are an infinite number of ways. You use every trick at your disposal. Uh, I'll name three of them. You have a fascinating character, Sherlock Holmes. He's more popular today than ever. In fact, many people don't know that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has written three Sherlock Holmes novels. I honestly was not aware of that. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I know, is a super creative guy, but I had no idea he had tried his hand at Sherlock Holmes. The, the second way to do it is a fascinating scenario, like Jurassic Park. You clone dinosaurs from ancient genetic, genetic material and turn them loose in a, uh, uh, an amusement park. What could go wrong? Uh, and uh, the third way to do it is with a seductive narrative voice. And I always point to James Elroy because he's inimitable. Uh, and for those who don't know Elroy, he wrote uh, L.A. Confidential, which was turned into one of the best modern noir films. Uh, so they published Nexus, Capital City Comics, uh, and we were off and running. And, and on the strength of that book, which spread like wildfire throughout the industry, uh, I was asked to write The Punisher uh, and to write Flash at DC, among many other titles. And I had a, a, a great career in comics for about 20 years when I kind of fell out the, ba the back end. Uh, and then there were 10 years of wandering in a desert. Uh, but, and all this time, I wanted to write novels, and I had to try. Uh, and when I returned to it, because I hadn't tried in years, when I returned to it, I was writing a novel one day. And, 
And suddenly I realized, holy shit, I've got it. I understand the form. I understand what constitutes story. I know what to do next. I know what happens next. Well, Mike, I know you're a man of many talents. To get ready for this interview, I went through some of your older work. I checked out your Punisher stuff, of course. I also decided to read your run on The Flash. You were in charge of Wally West right after Crisis on Infinite Earths, so that must have been a real treat. I just think you're a really great creator. The work you have has so many complex themes in them that you just don't see hardly anymore in the world of comics. I like that so much of your work touches upon real-world concerns we have today. You're very prescient in that way, especially when it comes to things like corrupt intelligence agencies and the problems that come with the war on drugs. You were very much aware of these things way before most people were. I, mean, I approached Punisher as a straight crime comic. And for three years, there were no superheroes or robots or aliens. Uh, I was ripping story out of the headlines. He took on drug dealers. Uh, he took on corrupt bankers. Uh, he took on a Jim Jones type evangelist. Uh, and I was having a blast doing it. If it's okay with you, I want to talk a little bit about what the comics industry is like now versus what it was like back when you were in it. Um, what are the feelings you have towards the industry and what's the sense you get of where the big two are these days and where they used to be? My experience may have been unique, but I had virtually no editorial interference in anything I wrote at Marvel or DC. Uh, it was a different world back, back then. Uh, Danny O'Neill was one of my editors. Archie Goodwin was one of my editors. These were giants who grew up in the comic industry. Uh, now, I haven't had a thing to do with Marvel or DC in decades. I do occasionally uh, pick up a couple of comics uh, to see how they're doing. And uh, I, I was appalled. And uh, I'll name specifically Captain America. I bought two issues that were years apart. They were both written by Tana Hesse Coates. And neither one contained any entertainment value whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> I also picked up the most recent iteration of Master of Kung Fu, uh, likewise. Uh, but at least it didn't go out of its way to insult me. Uh, now, I don't read a lot of comics, but what I see shown in the comic press uh, is dreary uh, social justice warrior nonsense where they're lecturing or condescending to the reader and scolding them for their prejudices and making bold statements of virtue. Uh, now, people have pointed out that superheroes have always stood for what's right, uh, and they should. True. Uh, True. But the first rule of comics, and this is something they seem to have forgotten, is people buy them to be entertained. And that's, if they're not entertained, they're not going to turn the page. And what I see of modern comics today seems completely taken over by frivolous identity politics. It doesn't appeal to anyone outside a very narrow fringe. I think a lot of these people are just writing the comics for themselves to get something off their chest. Uh, and uh, they've forgotten how to entertain. And I met, I touched about how, how you... Uh, how you entertain the audience, but, but, but the reader wants to have somebody with whom they can identify, uh, someone they can admire. And of course, for some people, that means very narrow parameters, but for most people, uh, they think Superman should appeal to everyone. And likewise, Batman should appeal to, to everyone and not to cater to special fringe groups. 
uh, I don't want to go too much into this, but it seems to me that the majors are hiring writers not based on their accomplishments or ability to entertain, uh, but to check off boxes uh, in, on a checklist of, of uh, certain characteristics that they want to make a point about. I take your point about the comic industry lacking some gravitas. I think about some of the biggest projects we've seen in the MCU and Marvel this year are headed by people who have very little experience and they have a very thin proven track record that they can hold these jobs. Uh, comes to mind, not to pick on her in particular, but Alyssa Wong, she was the one put in charge of Shang-Chi. She was put now in charge of Iron Fist. She basically had no experience in writing her comics before she got into the platform. And she takes on these huge projects. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, sometimes they're very PC, but they're almost always very boring. I have a very difficult time getting through any of her work. And I just Did she um, write Master merits. of Kung Fu? Yeah, she's the one that yeah, she's the one that just worked on Shang-Chi. That they made the big change. Yeah. Yeah, I bought one of those and no entertainment value. And there's another thing that bugs me is it's his master of kung fu. Uh, and this doesn't apply just to Alyssa Wong, but to the entire run of the book. There are no realistic martial arts portrayed in it at any place. And this has always bugged me. Uh, and one of the things I've prided myself on is including martial arts in a dynamic and realistic manner in my books. And that includes the Punisher and especially the Badger and the Bruce Lee comic that I wrote, where you see a technique unfolding uh, in stop motion time. You don't just see a, a fist or a foot waving around and people flying off panel. You see the actual technique and how it's supposed to go uh, when practiced correctly. Uh, and I like to get into uh, things that aren't just hitting, things like joint locks and takedowns and chokes. Uh, and we incorporate that into our books. And, and I do it often by, uh, I used to use old photographs from uh, uh, Inside Kung Fu or Black Belt Magazine, where they would have a feature of some master demonstrating a technique with uh, six black and white photos on a page and you see how it goes from one, two, three, four, five, six, you see the old technique unfold and we would copy those. Uh, I mean, the artist, he, not, he wouldn't trace, we never trace, uh, but he would use those to draw a realistic martial arts sequence uh, that's not only uh, accurate, but entertaining, like a good Kung Fu movie. One of the things I think is so cool about your work and the influence we've seen in uh, bigger projects, especially with Punisher, and one of my friends who's uh, really into guns and a huge fan of the Punisher is always pointing out these little intricacies. Uh, you know, th look, the way they hold the gun, the way it moves, I mean, the kind of ammunition, even in the yeah, We had to get the hardware correct or we would hear about it. <laughs> so, Mike, you decided to take a break from comics for a while, at least a decade or so, and you moved on to writing novels. Um, what inspired you to get back into working in comics? What, what was the motivation there? Well, my main motivation is I believe I'm getting better as a writer. But what happened is I moved from Madison, Wisconsin to Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, and I, I met a fellow named Scott Beezer, uh, who had a print house called Big Big Head Press, and you can look that up, it's, it's up, and, and Scott's work is readily available. He's a great illustrator. And Scott asked if I would do a book for them. Uh, and the book I had in mind was called The Architect. It's a horror story based on the life of Frank Lloyd Wright, 
uh, and it's really solid. I'm very proud of it. Uh, but nobody's ever seen it because Big Head Press had no distribution. Uh, they only had their little website. Uh, it, it is listed on Amazon. I think a few people may have some for resale. I have all the copies because they went out of business and Scott moved to Texas and he says, I'm dropping all, all these architects off at your house. And he dropped off about a thousand copies. Uh, and I sell them at, at conventions. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm, it's a horror story that's absolutely unique. I mean, the angle would blow your mind. It has nothing to do with werewolves or vampires or zombies. Uh, but it does have to do with a crazy architect who dabbles in the black arts. Uh, and that's kind of started it. And, and we had a little comic group out there. Uh, and it included Joe Arnold, who's the artist on Thin Blue Line. He's now a full-time police officer. And it also included Gabe El-Taib. I don't know if you're aware of Gabe, but he was DC's best colorist for many years. And yeah, I'm well aware of Gabe. He was the colorist on a lot of big projects for DC for a long time. He's the guy that they put in charge of uh, coloring for the new Superman projects with the pink hair, you know, Jonathan Kent, gay Superman, sorry, bisexual Superman and all that. I mean, that's a huge project. That's the biggest thing right now DC is pushing. And he spoke out against it and he quit in protest, which is just amazing. Um, so... Mike, pushing all that aside, let's focus on the project you're working on right now. The pro-police, pro-law enforcement, some might even say conservative comics project, The Thin Blue Line. Um, how did we get into this? What was your inspiration to try a comic like this? Some people would say this is a little bit different than The Punisher because Punisher, in, in some minds, is a very anti-law enforcement, very anti-order kind of comic. And perhaps you don't see it that way yourself. So uh, how did you move on to doing something that's kind of, in some ways, seems to be against the spirit of what you were working on previously? There's, there's an old saying that strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. And weak men make bad times. We are living at the peak of Western civilization. In fact, we've already hit the peak and we're heading downhill because people are so comfortable uh, that they don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from, although they will soon and some are now, that they become consumed with frivolity, such as 47 different sexual orientations, uh, the problem of whiteness, which is flat out racism, let's face it. Uh, we try to judge people as individuals, and that's why this country was founded, and that's what the uh, Constitution and Bill of Rights is all about. Uh, the primacy of the individual over the government. Uh, and it states right at the beginning that our rights don't come from government. They come from God. Well, we're in a fight for our lives right now because government is trying to remove all our rights. Uh, now, these people that are consumed with frivolous issues, I can only imagine that they're not serious people. A serious person is interested in serious matters. And most people, have their hands full doing their job, taking care of their families, and maybe watching a little football on weekends. But there's a certain class of person that spends every waking minute scheming how to get power over others. And those people have now taken over the hinges of our civilization, all the major institutions that control thought, the government, the media, entertainment, 
in the schools. And they've been doing it for 50 years now. And that's one of the reasons we find ourselves in this spot because frivolous people have taken over education and media and are delivering frivolous messages, which they believe wholeheartedly. I don't deny the fact that they believe these things strongly, mm -hmm. but they're not, they're not real issues. They're not serious issues. They're not the issues that a serious person would be uh, consumed with. So how do you think it happened specifically like in the comic book industry? Because it certainly wasn't that way back in the day when you were working there in the 1990s. I, I, at least it seems like there was enough, enough, they were conscious enough of their readership that they wouldn't try to lean so heavily into uh, the culture war politics that they'd kill off their readership. They don't have that concern anymore. I mean, what do you think? Well, what do you think I happened? don't understand. Uh, as I said, the first goal of the writer is to entertain and they've forgotten that completely. Uh, and it may be that a lot of these people who are coming into comics with the big two really aren't writers at all. Uh, they don't know how to tell an entertaining story, or they would. Uh, they're polemicists with a chip on their shoulder and going <laughs> to comics to unload their chip. Uh, and it's a funny thing about comics. It's the most forgiving medium in the world. You can get away with things in comics that you, uh, you couldn't in any other medium. And because comics are so readily available and seen, so transparent everybody thinks they're an expert and everybody thinks they could they know how to put out a comic but they don't uh do you know who theodore sturgeon was uh please remind me he's a great science fiction writer sturgeon's loss is 90 percent of everything is crap and this <laughs> has been true throughout the ages this is not a sudden revelation and i'm afraid that it's also true of most of the entertainment that we consume 90 percent of the entertainment that we consume is 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 crap. Uh, I don't think that they're choosing people who are storytellers. They're they're choosing people with chips on their shoulder, and I think that's because a lot of the editors have chips on their shoulder. Maybe maybe they've been marginalized or something, or, or they they uh, they feel that they've been pushed around, and now they have a position of power, and they're going they're going to get a little payback. Uh, but in any case, uh, comics used to be written by uh, people who knew how to tell a story, uh, like Will Eisner, who created the graphic novel, uh, Archie Goodwin, uh, Denny O'Neill, who introduced, this is my wife, Anne. Bye, baby. <laughs> Hi there. I have to go to a meeting. <laughs> nice to meet you. Uh, and they came up the hard way. Uh, Denny O'Neill was a newspaper reporter, like I was before he went into comics. And one of the things that you learn as a reporter, or you're supposed to learn, but reporters no longer do this, are the five W's, who, what, where, when, and why. You get the whole story before you start spewing words out or shooting off your mouth. But now we don't have reporters. We have the lickspittle, I call them. They're polemicists or pushing an agenda. And if there's one word that just makes my skin crawl, it's agenda. Because uh, if you want to tell a story, a really good story, the agenda has to take backseat to the entertainment. And if, if people think, well, I'm just ragging on a certain group, let me mention Ayn Rand. I mean, Ayn Rand had a lot of great ideas, but frankly, I find her stuff unreadable. <laughs> Read Atlas Shrugged and you get to John Galt's speech, it's a hundred pages long. 
she he could have said it all in one page. So it, maybe she was getting paid by the word, uh, but I don't think she's. You know, her philosophy is, is great. Her prose is dreadful. I know a lot of people that would definitely agree with you on that. And I do like, I like, I like Ayn Rand's story. I like a lot of her ideas, but I'm going to be honest. I haven't read a lot of her books for like fun reading. That's just not something most people do. Well, I read, I read Atlas Shrugged. I forced myself to do it. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about then some of your, by the way, do you ever, do you think DC or Marvel or any of these big comic book companies would ever have you back i mean i've heard this from people that the comic book industry right now is is super controlled and they're not, they're not even laying people with like a record you know with a legacy even to do any work for no, them is that true know, one of the reasons that the most the editors there have never heard of me and that's fine uh but it does point out to the fact that they hire editors uh who have no real knowledge of the history of comics uh which i think would be important because uh, most of us back in the day, we loved comics. We'd been reading them for years. We understood the form uh, and we understood the traditions. Uh, and we uh, supported those traditions when we came in, you know, unless you got carte blanche. I mean, I made, I changed Wally West around. I redefined Wally West, but he was a blank slate up to that point. So there was no problem. Okay. Well, it's their loss. Uh, it's amazing. They've lost so much talent. It, even like stories like people heading over to Substack. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Even I know. 10, 15 and, and years ago, you never imagined. They're circling the drain. And there's some question whether they'll even be publishing a year or two from now. I know. That is that's such a crazy thing to consider. It's just nuts. Okay, so let's go into the big, the big project you're working on right now is Thin Blue Line, which has got some reports in the media because... This is going to shock many people. It's a comic book that actually might be pro-law enforcement, and it has someone that works in law enforcement as your main artist. Uh, do you want to talk some about uh, Thin Blue Line? How did this thing come together? How did you meet um, your uh, artist for this project? Well, like I say, I've known Joe for years, since uh, long before I considered Thin Blue Line. And then one day, uh, watching these riots that swept through America last year, uh, you would see the same thing on channel after channel, city in flames, looters running in and out, and some idiot addressing the camera up front saying, these mostly peaceful protests are for a righteous cause. But at $2 billion worth of damage, thousands of small businesses destroyed, people who could least afford to lose their business, dozens of people murdered. And then the cries came out, we must defund the police. Uh, and you see politician after politician, we must defund the police. Well, look how that worked out. I mean, Portland downtown is a ghost town. People are afraid to go down there. San Francisco, every Walgreens closed its doors because they legalized shoplifting. They said, if you steal up to $900 worth of goods, we're not even going to bother to send a cop to take a report. Uh, Minneapolis, they just narrowly the city council just narrowly voted not to defund the police after all why well because and who could who could possibly have predicted this since they declared war on the police homicides are up 100 percent in every blue city uh, uh rapes robberies are up over 100 percent in every one of those cities 
that attack their own police department. Uh, Seattle has no police department. And to, and to add injury to insult, or insult to injury, now they have these uh, vaccine mandates that they want to force everyone to get a vaccine. Well, the science on the vaccine is hardly settled. Uh, and police officers and first responders and nurses and doctors are walking off the job all over the country, leaving hospitals and police departments understaffed even worse than they were. And these are all the result of asinine policies by people who have never had any experience in the real world, have never had to meet a payroll. And in fact, people who never worry about where their next paycheck is coming from. That's why most of these people go into politics, to line their own pockets at the public expense, to punish their enemies, and to enjoy perks that the normal citizen doesn't, ha doesn't have. Like they don't go through TSA. Many of them have their own private planes, which they all flew to Glasgow to take place in this ridiculous climate summit. Now you're winding, you're winding me up, Peter. You're winding me up. My well, apologies. Sorry. <laughs> so I decided, well, you know, this story needs to be told because it's certainly not being told in, in any of the popular entertainment we're seeing these days. There, I caught my mic there. No, I, I understand a lot of those, a lot of those frustrations, particularly last summer. I mean, that I, I, I think a lot we're seeing right now, of course, in Virginia, so much of that is, is what took place last year and just, I know the inflexibility of so many right now. Well, let me talk culture. a little about Thin Blue Line. It's about two police officers trying to survive a night in a riot-torn city. And it will be familiar to everybody who's, who's aware of the news. But I must stress, it's not a polemic at all. It's not a lecture at all. It's one of the best stories I've ever written. It's gripping. It'll grab you by the throat on the first page and you won't be able to put it down. It's just solid drama and it snaps and clicks from panel to panel. That's what I try to do with my entertainment now. No wasted space, no boring spots, just pure entertainment. It just happens to have police who are cast in a sympathetic light uh, because you're either for the rule of law or you're not. Civilization depends on the rule of law. You can't have regular commerce uh, unless you have laws against shoplifting, murder, rape, and doing drugs in public, all those things drive honest citizens away. And that's what's happening. Downtown San Francisco is now a ghost town. The streets are covered with human feces and needles. And these are all the results of the policies of a certain party that gets into party power uh, by virtue signaling. Uh, and I just despise virtue signaling. There's the second rule of storytelling. Number one is entertain. The second rule is show, don't tell. And that's a philosophy for life as well. Uh, if you want to do good works, do good works, but don't drag along a camera crew and issue a press release. Fair enough. All right, Mike. Well, is there anything else uh, you would like to talk about here today before we go? Uh, well, yeah, we're, we're working to fund this book. And because it's neither fish nor fowl, and by that, I mean, it's, it's not a superhero or a horror or a babe book. Uh, it's not catching fire like those books have. Uh, but as I said, the story is dynamite. It's the best story you're going to read all year. Uh, it's up, up on Indiegogo, Thin Blue Line graphic novel, Indiegogo. And if we reach $20,000, I'm going to dye my hair blue. <laughs> If we reach $30,000, I'm gonna dye my hair green. If we reach $40,000, 
I'm going to cut my hair into a mohawk. And if we reach 50, which is the level we need to do to adopt a cop, I'm going to shave my skull. Uh, adopt a cop is we're going to pay for a police officer to attend a jujitsu academy, uh, to learn techniques to subdue people without hurting them or himself. Joe is a master of jujitsu. He's been training for many years. He's a veteran. Uh, and uh, I mentioned that we like to show realistic martial arts in the book, and you'll see plenty of that in Thin Blue Line. Wow, that sounds pretty cool. I, so if you're going to do this, if it, so you're just going to do whatever the top one is, right? You're not going to like, if you get the 50,000, you're not going to like first dye your hair blue, then dye your hair green, and then eventually well, we're work gonna your go way We're going to go in up. stages, and I expect that it is, as the numbers climb, I will go through all those stages. <laughs> I don't want to miss any of them. You know, I personally would love to dye my hair blue, but I need an excuse to do it. What is your What does your uh, wife Anne think of this plan? Does she Does she have an opinion on the, the hair? <laughs> yes, yeah, she does. First, she was, "No, you're not." <laughs> and then she says, "All right, I'll help." It's for a good cause. All right. Well, hey, this is really cool to have uh, Mike Barone on. Thank you so much. I'm a bit. I I I just liked going through your uh your work. I just it was it was it was pretty nice because I get tired, you know, when I'm reading more modern comics, they just often doesn't seem like there's a mastery. And as you say, they're rarely entertaining. And I enjoyed going through your work very much. So thank you, Mike Brown, for being on the podcast. Thank you for your career and uh, everything you've contributed to comics. It's really appreciated. Thank you, Peter. All right. Thank you for listening to the Happy Warrior Podcast. Intro and outro narrated by Nicole Carino. Music by O-Wires. If you like what you hear today, please go to thehappywarrior.substack.com and subscribe. Be sure to follow us at happywarriorp on Twitter. Email is happywarriorp at protonmail.com. Say